When he returned permanently to Florence, probably in 1416 or 1417, Filippo moved back to his childhood home near the cathedral, a good vantage point for a man obsessed with the architectural puzzle presented by the dome to survey its progress. He would have found that much had been accomplished on the cathedral. The tambour or drum had been constructed between 1410 and 1413, with walls 14 feet thick in order to support the weight of the cupola. In 1413, a large new crane had been built to raise materials, and two of the three tribunes of the octagon had been vaulted. The church had also just acquired its new name, Santa Maria del Fiore, Our Lady of the Flower, having previously been referred to as Santa Reparata, the name of the older cathedral, which was now completely demolished. Now in middle age, Filippo was short, bald, and pugnacious looking, with an aquiline nose, thin lips, and a weak chin. His appearance was not helped by his dirty and disheveled clothing. Yet in Florence, such an unsightly display was almost a badge of genius, and Filippo was simply the latest in a long and illustrious line of ugly or unkempt artists. The name of the painter Cimabui means oxhead, and Giotto was so unattractive that Giovanni Boccaccio devoted a tale to his appearance in the Decameron, marveling at how nature had frequently planted astonishing genius in men of monstrously ugly appearance. Later, Michelangelo would become legendary for his ugliness, which was partly the result of a broken nose earned in a fracas with the sculptor Pietro Torregiani. And like both Giotto and Filippo, Michelangelo was indifferent to the state of his dress, often going for months on end without changing his dogskin breeches. In the end, ugly and eccentric artists would become so much the norm that Filippo's biographer, the painter and architect Giorgio Vasari, himself an uncouth man, with a skin disease and dirty, uncut fingernails, marveled that an artist as talented as Raphael should actually have been physically handsome. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Filippo was unmarried, but although in Florence bachelorhood was not unusual for a man in his forties, since men married late and generally look, took much younger women as their brides, Filippo would never marry, and in this abstention from family life, he also became part of a long and glorious tradition of artists that included Donatello, Masaccio, Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo. Many Florentine artists and thinkers took a dim view of both marriage and women. Boccaccio, who never married, criticized Dante for having done so, claiming that a wife was a hindrance to study. By 1418, Filippo was probably best known for an experiment in linear perspective. This experiment must have been conducted in or before 1413, when Domenico di Prato refers to him as the perspective expert, ingenious man Filippo di Ser Brunellesco, remarkable for skill and fame. It was one of the first of Filippo's many innovations and a landmark in the history of painting. 
Perspective is the method of representing three-dimensional objects in recession on a two-dimensional surface in order to give the same impression of relative position, size, or distance as the actual objects do when viewed from a particular point. Filippo is generally regarded as its inventor, the one who discovered or rediscovered its mathematical laws. For example, he worked out the principles of the vanishing point, which was known to the Greeks and Romans, but like so much other knowledge, had long since been lost. Greek vase paintings and marble reliefs show an understanding of perspective, as do some of the scene paintings for Greek tragedies staged in Athens, including those of Aeschylus. The Roman scientist Pliny the Elder claimed that this method of representation, which he calls imagines oblicae, slanting images, had been invented by a painter of the 6th century BC named Cimon of Cleonae. The Romans made use of perspective in their wall paintings, and some of its principles were described by the architect Vitruvius. Furthermore, it seems inconceivable that buildings such as the Pantheon or the Colosseum could have been built without their architects executing perspective drawings of some sort. After the decline of the Roman Empire, however, the technique of perspective drawing was lost or abandoned. Plato had condemned perspective as a deceit, and the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, AD 205, praised the flattened art of the ancient Egyptians for showing figures in their true proportions. This prejudice against the dishonesty of perspective was adopted in Christian art, with the result that naturalistic space was renounced throughout the Middle Ages. Only in the first decades of the 14th century did the ancient methods of perspective reappear when Giotto began using chiaroscuro, a treatment of light and shade, to create realistic three-dimensional effects. Giovanni Battista Strozzi's description of the dome, having been built circle by circle, is not only a reference to the method of bricklaying or the series of ascending circles that compose the two shells, it is also an allusion to the Divine Comedy, where Dante uses this exact same phrase, di giro in giro, to describe paradise, which is envisioned as a series of nine concentric circles. The comparison of the dome to Dante's paradise is an apt one for a number of reasons. Filippo was a scholar of Dante, having made an extensive study of the Divine Comedy in which his architectural instincts compelled him to calculate geometrically the precise dimensions of paradise, and domes have always been a conventional symbol of heaven. In both Eastern and Western art, the ceilings of the most revered shelters have been associated with the heavens, visions of which have therefore often been executed on their surfaces in paintings or mosaics. Persian domes were said to express the flight of the soul from man to God. But the nine arch rings built by Filippo in the outer shell of his dome recall nine other famous rings, those of Dante's hell, which is composed of nine rings that descend conically into the earth rather like an inverted dome. 
This too is an apt comparison, for in 1428, shortly after the first of the arch rings was completed, Filippo was to begin his own infernal descent. The planners of Santa Maria del Fiore had ordered that three colors should encross the cathedral, the greenish-black stone known as Verde di Prato, the red stone Marmum Rubium, and finally a brittle white marble called Bianchi Marmi. This last stone would cover the eight enormous brick ribs of the cupola, and in June 1425, the Opera del Duomo signed a contract for 560 tons of it. Bianchi Marmi was supplied from quarries near Carrara, 65 miles to the northwest of Florence. The marble from this remote district possesses a long and illustrious history. It was first exploited by the Romans, who used it for the Apollo Belvedere, which would be excavated at Frascati in 1455, and in the Arch of Constantine. Later, Michelangelo would carve some of his famous statues from it, including his da David and the Pietà. In fact, Michelangelo spent uh, many good months of his life in the steep, dazzling white mountains around Carrara, reopening and inspecting old Roman quarries and fantasizing about carving gargantuan shapes into the hillsides. Carrara marble was justifiably the most sought-after in Europe. Hard, clean-breaking, and a chaste white, it was perfect for carving and ornamentation. It was also extremely expensive. The acquisition and working of marble from Carrara was a complex, delicate, and occasionally dangerous business. Extraction methods were similar to those for the sandstone at the Trasianaia quarry. Blocks of marble were first of all cut from their mountain beds by rough masons wielding an array of tools, picks, hammers, crowbars, wedges, even heavy poleaxes to break the larger pieces. Besides brawn, the rough mason required a precise knowledge of the seams and an ability to cut both with and against the grain. After it was rough-hewn into shape, a more skilled artisan cut the stone to the exact size and shape specified by the templates. An even more varied assortment of tools, of all tempered iron, was used in carving the white marble, a stone notoriously difficult to work. A fine-pointed implement called the subia chiseled the block to within an inch or two of the penultima pelle, or the second-last skin. Then a chisel with the notch in the center of the blade, the scarpella, was used, followed by the lima raspa, or roughing file, which came in a variety of shapes and thicknesses.